All right. Are you ready? Or yep, sure thing. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another LocoCast.net. Craig, we managed to do a couple back-to-back here. I think we're within our two-week time limit. What do you think? What do you say? Uh, hooray. A miracle has occurred. <laughs> well, I don't know. It almost didn't occur. Um, you, you just got your power back about 15 minutes ago, huh? How's yeah. That? Well, funny thing happened. You know, someone apparently did something around, uh, around here and managed to snap a wire. And, of course... I'm sitting. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, six thirty. I'll, I'll, you know, go get something to eat and and whatnot. And all of a sudden, pew! <laughs> you gotta love that. Yeah, and it's like, okay, now we go into emergency survival mode. Uh, right. <laughs> well, because you know, it's it was a ninety degree day and stuff out there today, so yes. um, no power is never good. Yeah. Well, and and the fun thing too is that we only have uh, air conditioning in our bedroom. So I'm hanging out in the bedroom, I'm reading, uh, you know, Jeff Jarvis's book, uh, What Would Google Do? Because that happens to be the, the latest thing that was analog that I didn't have to go go too right. terribly far to get into. And Right. So. Uh, well, I'm glad you're back and with us and we can try to keep some sort of schedule going. Yay! So why don't we go ahead and cover events and we'll just do it really quickly here. We just want to let everyone know Ohio Linux Fest is next weekend. That is, shoot, September 11th? So, September 9th through 11th. 9th through 11th. And we will be there on the 10th and the 11th. No, we're not going to be there the 11th. We'll be there the 10th. We will have a booth. We'll be there the 10th, yeah. Yeah, we'll have a booth. We're going to join up with the Michigan Loco because, frankly, we are the Michigan Loco as well. So, we'll, Shh, Don't give it away. <laughs> you'll see this the strange table, the Michigan Loco big banner uh, with a bunch of microphones sitting on top of the table, and that will be us. So come down, check us out, say hi. Uh, maybe we'll do a little recording, some interviews and things, and we will see you there. We will snag you, and we will trap you, and we will hook your mouth up to a microphone and make you talk to us. talking about talking to some other developers who are working on their own little side pet projects and we happened to sit down and get some time with mike piernet who did a project how old is my kid.com since craig was out of power he's not part of this so Ooh, why don't i want why to don't, talk with mike too why don't i just take it away so last week we put not last week but last episode we put out a request we're going to try to get some people that have written their own little side code projects out there and to talk with them and find out how that stuff went and challenge and hopefully get a little bit of motivation for ourselves to work on our own little pet projects I'm sure we've all got. And so we got with us Mike Piernot is that how you yes. say it right? Yes. All right. Excellent. Now I can just stop and just say Mike from here on out and I'm safe. Perfect. All right. So, Mike, I happened to see you down at PyCon this year, which was beyond belief awesome for our, uh, my first trip. Was that, have you been before? Uh, yeah, I've been going to PyCon since, gosh, 2005 when it was in uh, D.C. You lucky bastard. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, and it was awesome because they have uh, great lightning talks at the end of every um, day, and you happen to have a lightning talk about a little pet project of yours, HowOldIsMyKid.com. Yes. You want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. Okay, so uh, it is a service where uh, a frazzled new parent primarily uh, can find out how old their kid is in terms of days, weeks, months, years, uh, I, I found when, when uh, my daughter was born that I had the worst time trying to remember, is she three weeks, is she four weeks, is she six weeks, is she nine weeks, or whatever, because and, and all, all those things are tied to specific milestones, but it's all measured in weeks. Right. Oh, well, it's, it's a mess. Yeah, and, and at that point, you know, you are so sleep-deprived. <laughs> you don't know how to tie your shoes, let alone how to count. No, no, slip-ons, yeah. man, slip-ons. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's the key? <laughs> that's the key. Awesome. Can you believe it or not, I was trying to write code back in uh, that time of my life. So that was, <laughs> I have, that was no, interesting. I, when I when mine was born, I have no idea how I did not get fired. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I found myself really struggling trying to keep track of her age and uh, basically wrote myself a little cron job one morning that would mm. uh, spit out some uh, XML, just a little RSS feed. And then I could subscribe to that in uh, Google Reader because I basically right. lived in that all day long at that point in my life. I'm still and, there, man. Uh, I'm with yeah. You. And so, so then uh, it would run every morning at, at 6 a.m. Uh, Google would go and hit it. And every day I'd have an update saying, Claire is awesome. So old, so old, so old. And no. uh, took, I took the time to write a real rinky dink blog post about it, threw all the code up, even in the mm-hmm. post and uh, a couple of people said that's really great and somebody said oh you should do a web service so that everybody can do this with their their kids hey if it's not I, on the web it doesn't exist man exactly so i said well gee that's a really wonderful idea and i bequeath it to you go go <laughs> make it happen have fun with that uh and i would love to use that and people said eh, maybe not it's amazing how helpful people can be when making suggestions to things your code should do <laughs> But when you're like patches welcome, how crickets the whole area can get, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, fast forward almost three years. (laughs) So actually about about three. Fast forward almost three years, uh, and and then I decided, you know, uh, I have I have a goal for myself this year. I was going to release at least one side project or one personal project this year, Mm -hmm. and. Decided, well, this is a, an easy one to do. It won't take me any time at all. Uh, so dusted it off, uh, abstracted it a little bit, and wrapped it in a real simple uh, pylons app. Woo-hoo! And now you can go to howoldismykid.com, enter your kid's name and age, and then subscribe to the RSS feed. Very and you cool. And you too can be a super parent. Uh, hey, you know, it's tough because uh, people keep asking me, and we're at that point, I'm at the 20-month phase. And so okay. people keep asking me, and I keep rounding, you know. I think, right. there's, I think there's two ways that parents go about this. Either A, they're moms, and they just know because it's in their blood. Right. Or they're dads, yeah. and, the, and the dads either geek out and go exactly like what you did here, or they, they, they fake it and they round, oh, it's about a year and a half. Yeah, right. It's yeah. he's, he's almost two, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> So from a from a standpoint of trying to get like a little side project going, what were the big hurdles that kept you from doing it for the three years in the middle there? Uh, work, parenting, uh, hobbies where I was trying to stay sane. Uh, the, the problem I found is is I'm sure like 
many people are like me that have, you have a lot of hobbies, right? right. So I want to write code in my spare time. I want to play video games in my spare time. I want to read books in my spare time. I want to drink wine and drink beer, cook good food, go to restaurants. I want to take good pictures. You know, I've got a, a photography habit I'm, I'm trying to uh, enjoy. Uh, mm -hmm. All these things are, are really competing for a, a very small slice of time. It's and, amazing. Yeah, it, it really is tough. And it's, yeah. it, it can be really, really frustrating that you don't get to nurture all those things that you want to do or give equal time to all of those things. Right. So that's cool then. So what tricks then or how, how did you get yourself to actually get things out the door? What, what did you do to buckle yourself down and chain yourself to the, to the laptop? Well, so the first thing is just to have the, sort of the patience to hold on to that idea and know that you want to run with it mm -hmm. because the opportunity might not be there right away. And, you know, in my case, I, I sat on it for three years and nobody really made something I wanted. Right. So, fine, okay, I'll dust that off. Um, it was really uh, right around New Year's, uh, a friend and uh, colleague of mine, Chris Miller, uh, decided that uh, he was tired of just getting by and he really wanted to, to kick his mojo in the ass and, uh, get, you know, really accomplish some things. And uh, that kind of motivated me to start figuring out, well, you know what? Maybe I do want to try to get some things done this year to feel good about right. myself and, and, and feel revved up. And I sat down and, you know, I don't want to call them resolutions because I have a, a real bad habit of breaking those. Yeah. But, you know, I sat, sat down and, and made myself some realistic goals that in the next calendar year I want to be, you know, I want to release a, a, at least one personal project. I want to be exercising X number of times a week. I want to actually, you know, break my not flossing enough habit, those kinds of things. Right. And uh, so I was just in this, like, weird little dead space. It was January, and I didn't have a lot to do for work, and I was procrastinating like you wouldn't believe on uh, my <laughs> PyCon presentation. Right. So I, was, so I, was, I would, had been selected to give a talk at PyCon and was... Uh, really, really, really putting off working on it. And this was a great way to say, you know what, I'm going to release this personal project and I'm going to announce it from a lightning talk. Yeah. And, and having this, this idea of crazy as it is, standing up on stage in front of a thousand plus people to show off something, I, I really wanted to do that because I'd seen people do that you know, for uh -huh. year after year after year. And I'm like, you know what, that would be something I would like to do once in my life. So that's kind of cool. So you you yeah. basically you really gave yourself a real deadline, like a company project kind of thing. You know, you kind of yeah. put some, you put some real force on yourself to to have a, a real deadline rather than just like, well, one day I'll get this. It was now I have to have it by. I think what PyCon was in March, right? March something yeah. or other. Yep. Wow. Okay. So that's really cool. One thing I noticed that you were doing some of with some of these goals um, is something similar to what I do with Bookie um, because you know you work in such small little bits. Whenever you get time. You know, time goes by, and I don't feel like I always get a whole lot done. So I started doing like weekly status reports. I'll do a blog post once a week on like what I accomplished this week, some little bit. But yeah. I, I have to write down, Rick, you did do work this week. Look, things did move forward, they didn't stall out and stuff. Yeah, and I absolutely. saw that you would have some blog posts on how your goals were doing. You know, when I, I got a little bit with this goal, a little bit with that goal, and to try to put that down on paper, did you find that that really helps you with keeping with some of these? I, I do. Um, it, it helps keep you honest with yourself and. Because there's a, this threat of public accountability, right. right? Even if nobody reads your blog post, there's the threat that someone's going to, and you've got to, you know, you've got to try to be honest to that uh, in a way that you might otherwise just make excuses or, or not do. 
Uh, but yeah, it absolutely helps. That's very cool. Any other big things that really helped you to like force yourself to get stuff actually done that might be interesting to other developers? Well, I will tell you that it's a bad idea to be trying to work on new features for your project uh, when Dragon Age sequels come out or when Portal <laughs> sequels come out. Yeah, that's been yeah. the one. Two, that's been the one-two punch. Like, I, I got a number of really good suggestions from PyCon, which is right. great. You know, having that I- immediate feedback and and uh, response from the community, uh, and and then the, the two most anticipated games of the year for me came out, and <laughs> it's kind of been all over. Time sink. So, Time again, sink. Yeah. Again, this gets back to patience. You know, you really want to do something. Right. You might not be able to do it right away. Well, it's not like um, a lot of priorities, you know. The yeah. games the games get a little bumped because they're new and when yep. once those die down, you can bump back up the priority of some other stuff. I would I would say also, you know, maybe, you know, practice time boxing yourself on things. Like there yeah. was a day that I said, you know, by the time my daughter is having her next birthday, I want to have at least a rudimentary countdown. So a couple weeks out, mm-hmm. it'll start telling me your daughter's birthday is in 14 days. You better do something about that. <laughs> but- it's 10 days out. Have you bought a gift yet? Have, you know, it's eight days right. out. You better do something. Are you prepared? Is the house clean? Right. Um, and I figured I wanted to make sure that that worked far enough out that I didn't have to stress about it with all the other birthday party prep stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there was a day when I, had an afternoon to myself. I had a couple hours uh, at home. It was a nice day. I just went out in the backyard and, you know, real like laser focus, just banged that feature out, made sure it was working and put it away. I felt good yeah. about it. But uh, it's, it's about, you know, I guess it's about finding those opportunities to get just the right amount of work done that you, you can feel good that you made progress. Right. Yeah. So how, speaking of the PyCon, you know, announcement, so how did the release go? How did everything go once you actually got it out there? Uh, it was really smooth. It was a lot of fun. Uh, of course, I was sleep-deprived and nervous and stuff doing my, my presentation. And uh, so, the, you know, the video I'm not as proud of uh, as I might like to be, but uh, luckily that's not on me for very much. It's, it's <laughs> up on the screen. Uh, they had a weird arrangement where uh, the video was going to like a... a monitor that was at my feet and I couldn't see what was up on the screen. I'm trying to do multi-monitor stuff and <laughs> I was terrible. Um, but I got a really, really positive response at PyCon. A lot of uh, great chat on Convor about yeah. it. A lot of immediate feedback on uh, Twitter about it, which is exciting when you're up on stage and you've, you know, I've had the presence of mind to mute my phone, but it still had the push notifications going. So every couple of seconds, my phone goes so that's an interesting distraction when you're trying to present, too. That's pretty fun. Um, of course, by the time I sat down, I'd already had my first bug report. So that's cool. Yeah, so both good and bad, right? You know, it's right. great oh, that yeah. when I tried it, like, a ton of people tried it immediately. Um, huge, huge spike on, on the, you know, because it pretty much has been me hitting it to test. Right. And so I got this huge wall of traffic. Uh, and, and luckily, it's it's really simple. There's no backend. There's no database. It's all just through like a little encrypted token that it makes for you. Right. Uh, so there's really no load on on the server end. So I didn't have to worry about scaling it or you know getting slashed dotted or something right. uh, there. But uh, you know after after the first few days of, of PyCon, then it kind of trailed off again. I think I get about um, between like thirty and fifty people using it a day, and it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, about half from the RSS and half from people just visiting. But That's it comes. Cool. It has little bumps, based on like when I mention it on some or something on Twitter. But uh, right. 
you know, and I unfortunately have not put a lot of energy into doing any kind of marketing or word, you know, it's, nah. it's all kind of word of mouth at this point. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's fine. I mean, there's definitely some things I like to do with it. Um, it might be nice if it made me a little money, but whatever, right? <laughs> it's, this was this was just to like get this thing out of my head so it existed and I could move on with my life. Yeah, you know, it's amazing how just awesome that can just be, you know, just to kind of just say I want to do something to do it, and then say, hey, I I did it, you know. And I mean, even yeah. if it, even if it doesn't get picked up by the world and turned into the next, you know, Django or super open source project or whatever, hey, it's yeah. it's there, it's it's done, right. it works. Yeah, and that's that's something that. You know, I, I'm in the corporate world all yeah. day long in my day job where there's not a credits page that says you did this and you did that and this person was part of this other thing. Uh, it's hard to sort of, you know, point to my own work and say, yeah, this is this is uniquely me. Right. Uh, so and that's that's, you know, good, I think another good motivation for having a side project is even if it's something that's modest, you know, if it's a, a modest thing well done. You know, it's a good feather in your cap. It's it's a good resume thing if you if that's oh. what matters. There's a it's, lot of uh, noise out there lately about how you know GitHub is my resume is the uh, the the term of the of the year. It seems like. Yeah, I I don't know how much I buy that. I mean, it's it, if you're really involved in open source, then yeah, it's great. It's well, it's not your resume. It's your portfolio, right? It's like an that's, artist's portfolio. That's the discussion that goes on is whether it's more portfolio or more resume and everything, and and so it's it's an interesting. Uh, right. Because if you're if you're absorbed by the corporate world, you know, or you're you're doing a, a day job, you're not really contributing a lot of open source necessarily, unless your job is really awesome and they pay you to do open source. Yeah, no. Uh, I, I you know, lots of people I'm sure are in that boat of I go to work, I make code happen for work. I don't get to talk about what's in it. I don't get to share it. I don't get to show it. Mm-hmm. I can't put it on GitHub. I would be fired and sued if I put it on GitHub. Do you find though? Because what I'm what I'm finding, and I'm curious if it's how true it is elsewhere, is that um, you know we use a ton of open source internally. So yeah. you know we're we're a, we're a business we're a company, but boy, we eat up the open source libraries, tools. I mean, we have. I swear, some other thing. We have half of PyPy synchronized out to a local <laughs> server so that we can we can install the stuff that we use. And I'm more and more, you know, we're finding this or that, whether it's a, a, a bug or something we want to tweak or whatnot. And I'm finding myself forking, you know, packages off at PyCon, for instance. I hung out with the Fabric guys, and I actually I got, you know, got to get in the Fabrics credits file by sprinting with them and helping out. So while it wasn't really, you know, my day job kind of thing, but because we, you know, live on Fabric with a lot of stuff at work, I was more familiar with it. I had forked it. I've got some GitHub, you know cred right. i guess with fabric with that do you find that you have at least some sort of that or are you guys really pure you know not invented here our stuff or else kind of you know company um we have a stupid amount of not invented here uh, <laughs> but we also have really like to take advantage of free things and we keep struggling with ways to give back and to to be open about about some of those things and contribute back mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's a hard thing because that's not a business priority Right. right. The business right. no business person is going to say, "Yes, here do this charitable thing and make the world a better place." Right. Uh, it's really, you know, where we've been able to contribute changes back upstream. It's really been things we've had to fight to do to say, "Hey, we're using this and we're getting a lot of mileage out of it and we fixed this one small thing that has nothing to do with giving us any kind of competitive uh-huh. advantage." Right. Can we please just do the right thing? And and usually then the answer is yes, but it, you do have to go through that process. And that's that's hard yeah. and that's fatiguing. Yeah. No, I understand. 
Well, that's cool. Although I, I, I will say, I I know your guys' company's a avid sponsor of PyCon and stuff like that. So yep, I you guys some credit there. Get them to give back uh, in in the dollar way, if it's yeah. not if it's not always the code way. Right. So, well, that's yeah, really- that's that's made me really happy that we get to at least participate in that way. Definitely, because uh, we've we've gotten a ton of mileage out of Python since 1996. Oh wow, it's been cool! Like hard, hardcore Python since '96. So awesome. Well, that's cool, man. And so I will recommend everybody go check out howoldismykid.com. I know my my kid now is 20 months. It's awkward to say, but <laughs> I, I can't wait till I can just start saying he's two. He's two, but you know it's. Right. That those er, those early years are, are rough, so go 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 get this. It's actually really cool, especially like you say, the first year when every time you go to the doctor, everyone's asking you how many weeks they are. That's you have to know the number. It's yeah, no way around it. So well, really cool. I think it's really interesting that you, you have a little side idea, you get it done, and hopefully some others out there will go out there, polish off their their dust lidden uh, you know ridden project, and and see if they can move it forward a little bit. All right, go get them. All right, so that's really cool. I I'm obviously am a big fan of people that have side projects that manage to put in the time and force themselves down and get it done. And to do it the way he did with the big PyCon announcement and to, to really be able to get that, that big, you know, the big audience with a community of a lot of, you know, great people, I, just awesome, I, all the way around. So check out HowOldIsMyKid.com for sure. <laughs> So why don't we jump into our links and tools of the week is multiple weeks. Week is? Yeah. <laughs> um, I was playing with a few different things this week that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, I was listening to a great podcast episode from the Changelog where they were chatting with a guy who was the um, developer advocate guy from the Google Chrome team. And they were talking about a lot of great things. A great episode. I can't recommend enough you go listen to it. A lot of great info there if you're a web developer of any sort. But one thing I really did like is that you know they were talking about SaaS. And I keep hearing about SaaS, and I'd looked at it before and went, eh, I don't know about this. It seemed like it's Ruby. It's more trouble than it's worth. I don't know. Um, but, you know, you get enough people saying that you should be doing something, and I'll, I'll go give it another shot. And I noticed that they had changed some things or added some features where you could write a more CSS-looking version of a file. And for some reason, that convinced me to give it a shot. So I spent some time since last episode porting Bookie to use uh, a SCSS file, which is the SAS CSS format, and really fell in love with it. It really helped me. I always have problems organizing, ordering, grouping together my different rules. And, and part of it's just mental, you know, if you... I'm sure people can do it without needing to do the the, the great things that the SAS will let you do, such as um, doing combined nesting of your properties. Um, it has some great tools for setting variables. So the colors for Bookie are set up with the light gray, dark gray, link blue. And then I can just reference them off the variable names. And if I tweak them a little bit, the hex color, I don't have to go through and find and replace across the entire project or anything like that. So... I will say that it, you know, it does require you to run a little Ruby process that compiles your CSS as you edit it. What's nice is that you do that as you develop, and you get a generated CSS file. 
So you don't have to worry about doing it server side and, and adding extra load and complexity to getting your app up and running on a server. The one problem with that, obviously, is since you're compiling a file, when you do go to like debug a live uh, install of your application, the line numbers don't match up, right? Because the line numbers of the file are, are in the CSS that's generated, but your code's coming from a SAS file, which is totally different. So one thing to be aware of is there's a Firefox plugin called uh, FireSAS for Firebug. We'll have a link in the show notes that will help you. Um, it would actually allow you to help map the line numbers to the CSS rules to where they came from out of your SAS file that you were editing. So very handy and cool, and I've had a lot of fun with it. You ever, you ever looked at it at all? I'm just finding out what SAS is. I've I've done so little CSS that I've not known <laughs> that there's an even better way of doing CSS out there. Yeah, there's a, a big movement out there because once you start generating these little blocks of SAS, because you can actually do things like include. So, for instance, Bookie, I've got a, um, a set of button uh, bases that set things like uh, drop shadows and border radiuses and a, a set of colors. And I also do things like hover states and all that. And it's built into this kind of this base base that then I can include everywhere else I want to use it. So it's kind of cool because I can go in and go, oh, you know what? I want this link to be a, of a type button, and I can just include button, and the CSS kind of gets copied over there. And I can go to a you know a, a form button and go, you know, I want this button to look like a you know my other buttons, and I just include the CSS. And so rather than setting additional classes and everything, it's actually more copy and paste. But because you're using includes, it's not you know, it's it's not duplicating your code across your whole file and everything. So it's it's kind of nice once you get into it. I wonder, are they going to ever make this into like some kind of a standard library where every browser gets it? Because it seems like everyone con- constantly reinvents, you know, the drop shadow or, <laughs> or button styling and that. I don't know. Well, and that's where people get to do, they, they basically build these little SAS libraries, things like Compass and some other tools out there have like predefined SAS setups that give you a certain type of navigation bars or certain footer looks or whatnot, and you basically include them into your file, and then you just tweak the, the variables for the colors, and you can tweak it to your site. So you actually can get some pretty interesting reusable components at the CSS level. So it's, it's interesting because it's not the HTML level, but the CSS level where you're building these reusable components across your sites. It's kind of interesting. Very cool. Next up, because I was doing a lot of editing of CSS and doing a lot of reloading and reloading and reloading, and I'd already bit, bitten the, you know, take the bite to get Ruby running and going on my laptop, there's a tool called Live Reload, which is a Ruby-based tool that works with a browser extension. And it works in Safari and Chrome and Firefox. It's actually really kind of cool. And what it does is it establishes a connection between your project directory where you're editing your files and the browser uh, tab that you're in. And whenever you change a file, it will reload the browser automatically for you. And so if you do a dual, dual monitor setup, it's great to put your code on one monitor and the browser on the other and just just hack, just edit. You never have to move your focus over to the other, other uh, monitor at all. It'll just keep reloading um, on itself. For any JavaScript, HTML, it's met with some Ruby stuff like ERB and some other Ruby stuff support, but it also does Python files. So... That worked out great for me with um, Mako because Mako generates itself to Python files. Those were detected as changed, and I could actually work on my templates in my app and see them reload and refresh as I did it. It was really kind of cool. 
I am surprised that you're actually speaking highly of anything written in Ruby. Now, you know me. I've never bet anything bad about Ruby. I just, I've had my fun trying to get, is this a 1.8 or a 1.9 and blah, 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 blah. So. Or getting all the gems like I've had fun with with uh, a certain <laughs> source. Uh, well, hell, it's tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I was following the development, and they moved over to Bundler. And, oh, God. Uh, now, because they move over to Bundler, it's got mm-hmm. some Zen tests, which now requires Gem 8, which is not included in Ubuntu. And... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I tried to get my boss involved with this because I, I ported one of my work projects to use a SAS file, and I was trying to say, hey, look how awesome Live Reload is. And he's like, but but you have to install and do Ruby on here. And I'm like, yeah, well, I already have a few things that are Ruby anyway. So, But I have not gone all the way into a full app that required me to, to look into things like RVM and all that. But I do follow a lot of blogs and podcasts of Ruby people, like the Changelog, for instance. So I hear a lot about it, and uh, evidently they somehow make it work. With magic, I'm sure. <laughs> and the final link is more for fun than anything. It was going around the Twitter, you know, social media verse this past week. And that is a tool called Retaliation. And Retaliation is a basically a library that will help you remote control one of these little USB Nerf gun shooters. This is awesome, actually. Yes. It actually hooks into a Jenkins server, like your continuous integration server. And the whole point is to for you to set up where the developers are within the aim of this little USB missile shooter. And whenever someone breaks the build, because it knows who made the commit that broke the build, it will aim at to the aim point for that user and fire a missile at them. And that's just too cool to let it go unnoticed. Well, and two, it also gives you the... Uh... The added incentive not to commit broken code. Everyone, everyone will know when the missile launcher starts, you know, whirring, you know, <laughs> that boom. someone's about to get whacked. <laughs> Take cover. <laughs> uh, so that now was the question just... is how would this work for distributed dev- environments? You know, where you're not all in the same office. Well, the one thing I could think of is we're going to have to actually distribute these things out and get them talking to each other over the internet. There you go. <laughs> VPN connection to your retaliation device of choice <laughs> to aim and fire at the developer's nose. Just make sure to do your tests. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Don't break the build. So the topic of the week here came up because we were doing some chatting in IRC about um, caching of your static files, in particular things like JavaScript and CSS. And we seem to have some differing opinions on some of this. Well, it also morphed into a conversation about whether you should compress your files or not. Yes. Uh, now, for, for folks out there that may not be 100% aware of what's going on here, uh, when we talk about caching, we're talking about all the different caches that are between your browser and the server. So you can talk about um, you know, just browser cache, uh, any caching that may be happening at your ISP level, any that may be happening at the, at the provider level. Um, the server itself may have some cache in there you know, for cache pages and that. 
And I think you made the assertion that you should always assume cash. Well, so I, when we were talking, I'm, I was basically more looking at the browser cache, right? right. When, I, when I develop a web application, I plan, I take direct account that the browser is going to cache a lot of these files for me. And that, that affects how I plan and how I organize my files, okay? So when you, when you load a website, a whole lot of stuff goes on. There's, there's DNS requests. There's actual file HTTP requests to go get the files that you need to render the page. Um, and then there's actually the actual rendering and processing of the HTML, the CSS involved, the, the actual painting of the window, which you can actually get uh, info in in today's uh, debug toolbars and things. And then there's the actual running and processing of JavaScript on the page, right? right. And there's a specific order. There's a whole lot, of, there's a whole lot to this. Uh, you can go as far down this rabbit hole as you really want. And... I've, I follow a few basic rules. Um, one, I try to make my files small, but I don't go through. Um, there's a difference between minification and compressing, right? Minification just means take all my code, get rid of the comments, get rid of the spaces, and just block it down into a blob. So it's still readable text. It still says, you know, variable Bob or whatever, and it doesn't replace things with smaller letters. Um, minification or compression will actually go through and find your variables and all the variables named, like let's say they're named, I don't know, Bob's Awesome Toolbar, we'll name them all C. And when you go look at the code, you'll see C equals something or something set something to C or C dot, you know, if you're doing a, some kind of function call or something. And you won't know what the heck C really is. So I, I don't go that far because I find between minification and then the servers these days will do gzipping where they'll actually compress the files as they travel over the wire to the browser and then the browser can unzip them. And most hardware these days can do that stuff so fast that it's you, you don't notice it as much. On I'm not I, obviously there are the Googles and the the companies that are doing millions of requests a month and all that and and they're on a different scale. But in my stuff I'd rather have it where I can clearly see it and if someone gives me an error I can go poke at it without having to, to do a lot of backtracing debugging through the 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 compression process. Right. And I come from in a previous life I was part of an operations team. So I come from the the folks that try and figure out, you know, okay, we have a problem with X file. Now, which version of the file do we have? And, and you know, if you get too many layers of caching in there, it can be a real pain yeah. in the ass. And so we, we've implemented uh, certain things to try and get around the caching and such. Uh, like, say, for instance, a minified file gets changed and you want to reload the new file. You know, if it's if it's in cache, especially if it's on the server side cache, and that you want to make sure that it grabs the new file, especially if you're using a CDN, um, a, a data network, or something like that, where it's distributing the files, you know, in various geolocations, you want to make sure that that file is consistent across all of those things. And caching can really screw things up in in very unique and interesting ways. <laughs> Definitely. Especially if you have a CSS sheet or some, you know, CSS sprite or something like that that you want to launch out and that, you know, that sprite isn't there. And so your mm -hmm. customers come back and say, hey, why is your site broken? Uh, or you're doing the testing, you know, after you just pushed everything. Hey, why is the site broken? No, definitely. And so this gets into why I was mainly focusing on the browser cache because all browsers do it by default. Um, it, unless you tell your users to turn it off, which I know some developers do just so they never have to worry about that kind of issue. But most people have it. And so what I tend to do is 
when I plan my apps out, I will try to front load uh, heavy files that I need to get cached into the into the user's browser cache on initial page loads, things like um, login forms, things that don't do a lot of work um, or have a lot of UI that needs to come down so that the the, the time for that login page to load is, is larger than it needs to be. But it saves me because once the user gets it, it's cached for the rest of their, you know, actually probably, for, I mean, until I tell them it's not cached, you know, if you're setting, you know, e-tags and stuff for the way in the future. Well, it depends but, on how the, how the uh, cache is honored as well. Yeah, no, true. Because certain um, browsers do really stupid things with cache. <laughs> this this is definitely true. <laughs> Internet Explorer. <laughs> <laughs> but this way, um, I can say, you know what, I'm going to have one big file that you get at login that's going to slow down login, but then everything else is going to be faster because you don't have to make five web requests to get the files you need on page two. You've already got all of the everything you needed already with you from that initial request on page one, and because it's cached, it's going to be a ton faster than breaking it up into smaller bits that I scatter across the web, you know, the, the app as you get to the different pages. Because I find on my apps the enemy isn't file size all the time, it's the number of web requests that a browser can make. Because let's right. say you've got 10 different files that you need to render a page out, you know, four images and two JavaScript files and the HTML file itself and then a CSS file and however many you go. Um, most browsers will, will limit, they will only grab two or three files from a, from a specific domain at a time. So if you've got 10 files, it first grabs the first three. Then it, when those are done, it grabs the next three, and then the next three, and then the next one. So while you've got 10 files, even if they're very, very small, it still has to make you know four sets of round trips to go get all those files and won't do them all at once. Yeah, and that's a pain in the ass. It is, and that's why I say that for me, I plan on the cache because I send big files down initially and try to cut down the number of those requests. And that's part of the reason why I do the minification. I'll combine my files and minify them into one you know, super JavaScript file for the application um, that has all the logic for the, all the different pages, and then just you know the pages load and they call the right one for the right page. Now, do you do that shit where you, you try and uh, strip out you know, all, the, uh, all the white space? Yeah. Verminification as well. And that drives me absolutely insane. <laughs> no, I mean, unfortunately, um, th there are reasons to do this stuff. I mean, the, the file size does matter, especially I know at work we have a lot of clients that are working off of VPN connections and things that just aren't that fast. Um, while most cable connections and things are 4, 8, 12 uh, megs a second, um, a lot of the businesses out there are still connecting around on T1 lines, you know, and... Well, a, v a VPN connection can also do wonders for you if you're sitting, you know, five feet away from the server, <laughs> but yet your connection is coming from, I don't know, New Jersey. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So that that's why I still do, do – I do what I can without shooting myself in the foot by doing file combining and, and, and minifying, but I don't go as far as I could go down to the compression level. Do you, now, do you see any benefit from doing the uh, – from stripping white space? Yeah, no, file sizes are greatly reduced. No, I mean, file sizes, yeah, but I mean, are you, are you, do you actually see differences in load times? I mean, it's, it sounds like that one Stack Overflow question that we got, 
you know, where where the guy was saying, oh, can I optimize my compile for my Ruby code by stripping mm-hmm. out, you know, mm-hmm. stripping out all the spaces and putting in tabs? And we said, you know, you're you're an idiot. Yeah, no, <laughs> but when when you combine, I think like one thing I've got has um, it's like a little mini library. It's got seven different JavaScript files with a ton of different code in it, and I combine them into one file and then shrink them down, and I can literally get. I mean, we're talking twenty plus percent file size savings from those seven files concatenated into one and then minified. Okay. So, um, you know, it, it, you can. It all depends on your code, right? I mean, if we're talking about someone that's got a 100-line JavaScript file and they go through and minify it and remove the white space, eh. Um, yeah, like, like, like jQuery, I can understand why they would minify their stuff and make it all you know, no, nice and, they, and small. And they go and compress, and, and they moved from the YUI compressor over to the Google uh, compressor because it was, you know, an 8% better at uh, file size. When you get that many... But they're also serving out that same file I mean, right, how many times no, over Exactly, CDN. exactly. And I'm, I'm not worried about our bandwidth costs, right? That's why I don't go to that, all the way down to that compiled, you know, uh, levels. Because... I, our bandwidth cost, we're not getting enough requests to, to really affect that in a, in a way that I need to worry about. I'm purely worried about from the user's perspective, how can I get this to them as fast as possible? and and Or maybe not as fast as possible, but as fast as that is as reasonable, right? It's like, have you done enough due diligence to help the user is how I look at it. And I do find that combining files, minifying is, is enough due diligence that makes a difference. Now, do you have that part as part of your build process then? So anytime that you, you update that file, it creates a new minified file? So um, I've there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, I have done before where I have it as part of a build. The other thing is there's a tool, there's a Pylons WSGI uh, tool called um, Minification Web Helpers. And in there, it actually has a little layer that will go through and you can use... Um, in your Mako files, you say this is a these four files are part of this should be part of one file on when the app is live. When it's not live, go ahead and make four different links for all four files. And so what it does is it actually checks when the app is started. It goes through and and the first time it's called, it actually builds the combinated file and compress and minifies them and writes out a new combo file. So it does like whatever whatever dot combine dot js for me. Mm-hmm. And then it monitors the timestamps to know that the files have changed and whatnot, and it manages it for me on the actual app live. So I don't actually have a, a build step because there's a layer in the application that takes that first hit, builds the file, the combined minified file for me, and then serves that out to everybody after that. So that's a little less hands-on and a little, little more automatic um, that way. Okay. Now, one of the things that we, we got discussing was uh, that certain... Uh, antivirus programs out there, and I don't remember which ones they were, and maybe yeah. the semantic variety, treat compressed JavaScript as though it is rogue code. Because, you know, it's it's really handy when you have something that's nice and obfuscated and can't be easily uh, looked at by human eyes to put in things that are not necessarily uh, on the up and up. Yeah, I find this really interesting because of the fact that it, that it is just JavaScript and, and, and going through the JavaScript code looking for bad things seems strange to me. But yeah, there was a whole article on how they're working together with the large players that do need the full compiled compressed code like jQuery, library authors of all the diff- all different sorts and types and all that um, to get them kind of whitelisted through this like this filter checking thing that would run through. And I I just 
I don't know. I can't imagine going through that. Um, I was floored. I never really even thought about it. Well, that's why, you know, all these other folks get paid the big bucks, you know, all the black hats and that, to make these kind of decisions <laughs> to to to, to uh, compress their stuff so that folks can't really figure out what's going on with it and, oh, no, and you do get, bad things. You always get the guy that's like, hey, I don't want anyone to see what my JavaScript does, and so they, they go through this compile step just because can, of the Can fact. I speak to that guy real quick? <laughs> hey, dude, person who thinks that compressing your JavaScript is going to make it so that people don't steal your code. You're an idiot. Stop it. <laughs> Especially because there are there are some tools. Um, the Chrome developer tools or the WebKit developer tools recently got an unminify option where you can take your JavaScript code and it'll tab it and clean it up and everything and make it readable um, and maintain the line association. So when you hit an error, it'll go to the right place and all that, which I think is just, you know, it's awesome for me because I keep my code in a readable format, just just minified down and all no new lines and everything. As long as possible. Yeah, and so possible. Yeah. yeah, so it's easy for me on my stuff if I do have something I want to debug and trace to actually just unminify it, get full, clean, tabbed, you know, organized code, and then work from there um, while still giving all my users the benefit of the smaller file sizes and everything. So there are a lot of tools out there these days to help unminify, un- unuglify, I think is one of them. Uh, there's a bunch of them out there. That's cool. All right, so let's wrap this up with books. I have been on an auto audiobook kick fetish. Actually, first I wanted to talk about is that the Amazon HTML5 uh, read.amazon.com. Oh, I'm in love. Um, that is awesome to pull up my whole book collection from my laptop, from a browser at work without having to drag around the Kindle. Um, just so awesome. If you're not trying it out yet, try it out. I find it so darn handy. Yes. Um, I, on the other hand, am on day nine, I believe, of my get satisfaction request to Kobo to try and figure out why the hell my Kobo wireless reader will not do WAP anymore with Uh-oh. my wireless. Yeah. It only does WAP. Thank you. Ooh, you mean so WPA, you mean? or yeah? Yes. And, and every now and then it'll crash on my PDFs and that. So I'm oh. a little bit out of love with Kobo. Uh, so, hey, Kobo. Read my stuff, please. Get back <laughs> with me. At least if you know if it's just to give me twenty five bucks so that I can buy a nook. Thank you. <laughs> nice. Um, but I have been going through a bunch of audio books as well, and the one I'm I'm three quarters of the way through right now is Ghost in the Wires, which is a recent book with Kevin Mitnick and a co author William Simon. And I got it just on a you know it was like recommended to me, and I thought, eh, why not? I'll try something different. Um, and holy cow, I can't put the thing down. I keep, I, I'm listening to it and like, as I walk around the house and, you know, it's, uh, for some reason it's really, really interesting just going through kind of like the story of how he got into the hacking and things and what kind of stuff he was doing and a lot of like play by play, blow by blow examples of stuff going on. And, uh, right now he's, you know, off and hiding in, uh, Colorado and everything. And I, it, I just find it fascinating for some reason. I, I never really followed his story a lot before, 
um, when all that was obviously going down. You, you know that you know the name. You know, I know I know that he was in trouble for you know he was like the I don't know about the Godfather of social engineering or whatnot, but um, the poster boy definitely. Oh, but it's just it's just a great book. So I can't recommend that enough. If you're into that kind of thing, there's enough geeky in it about how some of the stuff work to make it interesting to like listen to. But it's not too bogged down in it to a, you know if you don't really care about what you know telephone switches and stuff are, then you know you could still listen to it or read it, and and it should be okay. Very cool. No book for you. Well, I've been like I said, I started reading uh, What Would Google Do. Uh, because the power uh, went out, and I think right. I'm going to finish it. Um, <laughs> what's What's interesting is that uh, Jeff Jarvis uh, posted on his blog, and the first chapter is about you know customer relationships and, and whatnot. And uh, he posted at one point uh, in 2005 about how Dell sucks, and managed to become like the champion for all the people that had you know done Google searches and whatnot to find Dell sucks. And found his blog post and rallied around him and such. And uh, over time, Dell finally listened and understood that they need to actually listen to their customers. Hint, Kobo. And uh, and (laughs) suddenly transformed themselves from having one of the worst customer service uh, departments Mm -hmm. in around to actually having something that is useful and worthwhile and that people can, you know, they actually now believe in the product as opposed to before when they had yeah. no communication whatsoever you know they they didn't listen to them so right uh, like I said I'm only about 17 pages into it uh, but so <laughs> well, far it sounds like a really good read cool we'll catch it on the uh, next episode then there you go so with that we'll leave you all uh, hopefully inspired after Mike's interview and with some toys to play with um, and we'll catch you guys next episode. And hopefully you have power. Power good.